everybody, I'm Michelle Morrow and this is um, our lunchtime learning sessions. We'll be recording this for our podcast, My Home School, Inspire My Home School, which we've just started and it will also go up on our YouTube. Uh, I'm, today I'm interviewing Catherine McKay or Kathy McKay and we're going to talk about parent culture. I've known Catherine for about, she said she's been homeschooling for uh, 12 years I think I must have met her in her first year of homeschooling um, and uh, she has six fantastic children and only one girl she said she recently just had a birthday and she's a lot younger than me so um, let's uh, get into it so do you just want to say hi Kathy? Yeah, well thanks for having me Michelle it's really lovely to stop at lunchtime and talk about the things, the work that we're doing. Um, well, what we're going to talk about today is parent culture and how uh, parenting and homeschooling go hand in hand. Um, I often think that you can't separate the two. Um, a lot of people start homeschooling um, for academic reasons or problems at school or but some people also start because um, of the parent culture that they want to make in their own home and I know there used to be a, a there's some things about mother culture out there that Karen Andriola put together but I think you're right in calling it parent culture because it's not just about the mother it's about the whole family and how the parents are working together to provide a certain environment. So how do you think homeschooling and um, parenting go hand in hand? Well, I, um, I think it's interesting that you draw the contrast between people whose entry right, entryway into homeschooling is through a crisis, like feeling like something's gone wrong and this is their last option. And then people who actually it's seamless with their view of parenting, like they're doing it, choosing it actively and proactively. Um, and I think for whatever reasons we start, we usually grow into to some different reasons um, over time as well. I think the um, connection between parenting and homeschooling um, has to be, well, in parenting, we're about the formation of a whole person. Um, it's not that we are forming our children, they come to us fully formed, but um, without knowledge and without experience, and it's it's our work to help them grow to maturity and into the fullness of their personhood. And then you start to see as you're doing that, well, of course, education is a subset of that. That's really actually the same goal that education has. Shouldn't just be this sort of utilitarian um, mindset that our society slept in which is um, that you just go to get an education so you can get a job um, but it is actually so that you can come to know and and when as you know more um, you have more capacity to notice things in the world and to enjoy things in the world but also to give to the world um, to to be a blessing in the world um, and and that it, it takes um a whole lifetime really to finish growing up is it's kind of one of the disheartening things about hitting my 40s and starting to I've got one child who's an adult now is realizing oh I am still growing up and and I kind of thought I'd sorted that out 20 years ago but the new every time you hit a new stage you realize all these immaturities you still have hitting and sitting in yourself and so once you start to realize oh wow this is a whole life then um 
the it's quite a natural connection between homeschooling and parenting because what you're doing is you're saying actually all of our life together is part of the formation of this child um, toward maturity and um, it isn't just the lessons we do or the institution we send them to um, it's it's every part of our shared life and space and time and interests together so um yeah it's a and I think the more you homeschooling sort of forces you to to deal with parenting um is probably the other connection when things aren't going well um in your homeschool and you think oh no this is a disaster um the child isn't you know maybe there's some sort of uh disagreement between what your child wants and what your idea was for them at every one of those points where there's a tension, you realise, well, it's actually, it's actually a, a relational issue. It's a parenting issue. Um, the things that often derail homeschooling end up being um, family dynamics or um, parenting. Um, things that we are responsible for as parents um, sometimes um, are the things that, that end up causing us the stumbling blocks like when, when a child isn't um, complying with something then then it's not just um, that the school book is a problem it might be you might be a terrible sawdust resource you're using and it's unfair to ask them to try and eat something like sawdust but um, sometimes it's that actually we have a whole way of being in our family that is putting some stumbling blocks in, in front of our child. And we need to step back and, and look at what we can um, alter or modify or how we can get rid of the stumbling blocks for our child so they can get on with maturing and learning. Um, so our I guess the natural authority and um, proximity and intimacy we have as a family um, both create opportunities to really help children learn in a way that no one else in the world is positioned to do. But it also means that um, we have great scope to kind of hinder each other. And so, and that's what's exciting about homeschooling is that you get to work on these really important things um, but it's also what's overwhelming because you can't say, oh, it's the school's fault or whatever. If something's going wrong, you feel an enormous sense of responsibility um, and often powerlessness. And so, um, yeah, often like in anything in life, the, great, the greater the blessing, um, often the, the weightier the, um, the responsibility and, yeah, the, the difficulties that can come with it. So. Yeah, I think they do go together. That's that's wonderful, um, and also terrifying at times. Yeah, Catherine, I could just sit here and listen to you, and I, I forget that I'm actually <coughs> hosting uh, the podcast because everything you say is just so uh, resonates so well. I know that when we practically every single time we have a workshop, I know I'd say every single time we have a workshop. <coughs> We get asked parenting issues, it, even if it's about a curriculum, uh, maths or uh, English or reading or everything. It's always um, parenting issues that are coming up for people. So how would you say <clears throat> someone who's having issues can start to 
deal with um, the parenting issues that they're having when it's sort of clashing with their homeschooling? Where would you sort of send them or how do they get the wisdom they need? Because that's where, you know, they're really at a crossroads because they don't know how to deal with it and so they give up and they think yeah. school's so much easier because I don't have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, and, I mean, just a point of I think those points where you feel like it is easier to send them to school because I can't cope with whatever this difficulty is with the child. Um, and you and when something's going wrong, it's a point at which you feel like you're a failure. You're very emotionally vulnerable at that point. Um, and but I, I, I've learned um, that every time I feel like there is this insurmountable problem with the child, I think, well, that's actually why <laughs> I'm homeschooling is so that we can work through this, not just cover it up and put it away um, somewhere else for someone else to not actually deal with, but to, to mask over. So if you hit those points where you are feeling dispirited because your child is immature or not doing what they ought to do, that's not a sign of failure. It's a sign you're actually doing the work. <laughs> um, so take heart and don't be put off by that. That's normal. That's why we've been given these children who are is so we can help them toward maturity. Um, they're not yet mature. Um, so, yeah, don't let your feelings um, wash you around too much with that. Um, but the question you are asking, I think when we're trying to figure out how to, uh, there are a lot of questions to ask. And I think one of the problems is we have a presenting issue and we often take it online and Google a response and then a stranger gives us their advice but they're not actually seeing all the variables in your life. And we often um, have our own interpretation of what the problem is, but sometimes we need someone outside ourselves who can actually, who knows us, who loves us, who knows our children and cares for them um, and knows our husband and knows some of the situation around that we're living in, you know, whether it's the sort of neighbourhood and um, you know, there's enormous variety between someone who lives in an apartment in the inner west of Sydney and the sorts of opportunities and limitations they have and someone and then how that plays out in the family interactions and someone who's, um, you know, on a property in the upper Hunter Valley because you have different conditions which create different strains. So having someone who is who actually knows you and loves you and even if they're not going to be an expert, I think having the humility to say to them, can you, I'm seeing this problem in our family and make sure you're not talking to everyone and anyone and everyone. Um, respect your child's privacy, but, and honour your children by not, you know, disclosing too much. But if, you, if there is someone you can trust, actually inviting their observations because they might have noticed something that they, they wouldn't dare bring up, <laughs> but they might see something and it might be a little thing, um, but sometimes they, they see past our own blind spots and just um, they might have a suggestion and it might be a tiny thing that you can change that makes an enormous difference. So I would prioritise face-to-face um, feedback and help wherever you can find it. Um, and, and then I think there's a difference between struggling with the parenting stuff if your child is three and struggling when they're 12 or then 15. So I think know the stage you're in and know the 
I guess how what your authority is meant to look like in that stage like when they're little you're meant to be training them in the habits of, of what is good and that's very different from when they're 15 when you can't go and treat them like a three-year-old um, for better or worse the ship has sailed on some things and so you need to um, do what you can to go for the relationship um, and be alongside them rather than um, I guess guiding from from above you know and so I think understand the stage you're in and what um, often when there is a conflict um, with any of our children Charlotte Mason um, who you would have heard her name most likely she had some wonderful insights about um, she has a volume called ourselves and it's all about what makes us as people and we get out of order like there are lots of appetites and desires we have and they are good servants to us but if any one of those appetites or desires tries to take charge then we're derailed and so often when uh with my kids if we're having a bit of a difficulty um first of all I remind myself that I'm not like let's try and get rid of the antagonism from this and I need to remind myself that I'm actually on their side not against them and then I need to make clear with whatever means I've got available to them that I'm on their side wanting their joy I'm not trying to deprive them of something I'm not trying to force them to do something arbitrarily that I am trying to use the authority and the um, responsibility I've got for their joy for their good not just immediately but long term and so if we can start thinking about actually I'm I'm working for the good and the joy of this child and start expressing that to them and then maybe trying to sympathize with when this issue that we're conflicting over what is the good desire that they have in that like they might be expressing it badly they might be trying to meet that need in a really unhelpful inappropriate way but at heart there's probably a legitimate good need and and you can talk you know if they're getting into late childhood and certainly the teenage years you can talk to them about you know trying to understand like what that good um, legitimate god-given drive or appetite or desire is and then show them help them think about okay so what are some legitimate um, ways steps we can take toward that desire being met and show that you're actually on their side um, to meet those good desires rather than feeling like they've got to grasp at things in a way that just isn't good for them and not good for the family. Um, so I think, yeah, breaking it down into what's the good thing that we can go for because often we get sidelined with parenting by just looking at the problems uh, or the bad habit or the, um, whereas if we think well, what's the good thing that we want to pursue in its place and um, and then put our attention toward pursuing the good habit and, and then trying to maybe sometimes change up conditions just so the situation or the, um, I hate the word trigger, but <laughs> the triggers to the bad habit um, are kind of uh, crowded out. So there just isn't the opportunity for that thing to happen, but there's a lot of opportunity for the better alternative to happen. Um, I hope that's not too abstract. It's hard to speak to specifics when we're um when we represent such a wide range of stages here. But yes, uh, no, no. I think everything that you're saying is is great. I I think that when 
I particularly like the point that a lot of people go online for their advice uh, and a stranger answers. I thought that was excellent because I, I know in some forums when people are having problems, uh, there is a very large percentage of homeschoolers out there that uh, will just say, well, just stop asking them to do anything. Just, you know, the the problem is you because you you have an expectation. So if you just got rid of all of your expectations, then it wouldn't annoy you anymore. Uh, And and I always cringe when I hear that, because I think it is true that our pride can get in the way and we can be trying to make things happen that maybe are just because we we've sort of decided that that is the right thing to do when it it is more motivated by our own desire to look smart or look like a cool homeschooler or whatever uh but most of the time that's not our motivation we're trying to steer and train our children and and i think the total hands-off approach uh i've yet to see it work out that well so Yeah. yeah Uh, Okay, now let's just have a bit of a change uh, with the questions. And I I thought it might be nice to talk about how you think, because you have that big library behind you, how you think the types of books that we choose can influence our parenting culture. Um, So I think books matter so much, but not in the way that people often think. So I think when people say, yeah, books matter so much, therefore we want to get all the books that teach the virtues and the morals that we want the kids to end up with. And I think that's um, my child struggles with selfishness, therefore give me the book that's going to fix their selfishness. And so we try to use books to change cultural problems in our family in a way that books aren't designed to. And I think what we end up doing is we, we strain the relationship and we strain um, our child's relationship with us but also with literature and learning Um, and we also end up choosing not the best books because good art um, in any form but in literature isn't first and foremost has to be an excellent story written in excellent language Um, it has to be beautiful in its way and um, as soon as an author has an agenda um, and they's like, I'm going to write a story to teach kids this, then you can pretty be pretty sure it's not good art. And so it's it's under the standards of what we need in order to nourish um, family culture. So I think uh, one thing I have noticed over time, so my first few years of homeschooling, I didn't really have much of an idea of what a good book was. I was quite hands-off and eclectic in our approach. And I just had very much a baseline, look, we'll do a bit of reading, a bit of writing, a bit of maths, and then they just play all the time. And as long as they're not watching TV, I'm happy. And I think that was better than a lot of options. But the thing was, my kids, um, I don't think they had the intellectual nourishment that they needed. They didn't have um, the, you know, great stories. And I think where the children aren't getting the intellectual food they need, which comes through Um, wonderfully written stories, Um, then they end up um, bored 
and not the good kind of board that we all say kids need to be bored, but the bad sort of board, which is just listless and depressed and um, not knowing how to be interested in things because in new interests aren't being brought before their mind um, in a nice steady stream as they do come in good books. Um, and they end up more fractious and um, discontented because they're not um, getting the nourishment they need. And often um, if they're not um, getting fed with knowledge and beauty and truth, then they, they tend to start trying to meet their needs in other ways, like controlling each other. And, um, and, and that just leads to a bickering and, and it has a, a real souring effect on, I guess, the family atmosphere and family culture. Um, so positively, I would, once I just sort of discovered um, better books and Charlotte Mason and I started being a bit more methodical about just the diet, I guess, that I was giving my kids every day, they were getting more stories, um, more just excellently written um, books so all the genres um, you know you've got your biography and your myths and legends and poetry and um, you've got picture studies you know alongside that um, and fairy tales and your historical fiction lots of different kinds of um, knowledge all coming together and then that has a, a satiating effect I think on their intellect um, in some ways well, it's, as Charlotte Mason said, the living ideas have a living effect in their mind. It produces more ideas and more interests. And they start to um, know that instead of trying to just control siblings or um, having a small mindedness about the environment they're in, their view is directed outside to the bigger world. And they start to see more and be interested in more. And you know, you cannot, um, the one thing you are allowed to take charge of in this world isn't another person, isn't your siblings, um, it's knowledge. You're allowed to go and you're not going to run out of that. It's it's infinite. So you just go and learn more and read more and, and alongside that learn some actual skills to use um, your senses with and, and your body. Um, and so I think as everyone in the family is nourished and better occupied, that it's a bit like adding to the compost and building up the nutrient in the soil so that good things can grow. There's just more life being circulated in the family and in the household, which um, sweetens the, the family culture. Um, I think it's easy to go and say, right, we want to have a family culture that looks like this. And you kind of cut and paste a picture of what you want things to end up like. And then we get discouraged because we can't actually control. Um, it, that's, that's pretty superficial. But if you start investing by sewing in excellent books and story and just the sort of, you know, things that will come with a good education, just a steady diet, then that naturally generates a family culture that is rich and lovely. It will have its own flavour and distinctives and you can't always know um, exactly what that's going to look like because your own children's personalities are going to work um, and, and blossoming in their own ways. But, yeah, I think um, you, you cannot build that sort of family culture without input from outside the family in the form of 
um, excellent books and excellent art and um, yeah, forming relationships with things in the world. Uh, so today is, uh, we're required to sort of have a certain canon of knowledge, I suppose. And, uh, you know, within, I know in America, for example, depending on what state you're in, you can really run the show however you want and you could just read books for your entire education. But in Australia, we have more constraints. And so there's some topics that either there's not a good book on or uh, it's it's a topic that you really, um, it's kind of boring. Mm. So how do you, as a homeschool mum, sort of deal with those, those topics, the things they sort of just have to know, even though they're a bit boring and the things that you think, well, there's only way I, I can teach I mean, obviously, maths like calculus or something like that. You know, you don't want to read a living book on calculus. No. Uh, but so, how do you deal with those sorts of things? Yeah. Well, I would. Um, I think everything, even if yes, it can be hard to find the resources that um, uh, do things justice and help us form a living relationship with things. But I think everything that we need to teach is somehow connected to human life and existence and um and everything has its own like even and I think I mean Charlotte Mason would says you don't use living books for teaching maths you you know if the ideas are rich enough in themselves and as a child forms a relationship with those ideas um that's that's the living um you know it's having its it's its own language um that's telling its own living ideas, its own story. Um, so I think there are, it's, um, I would try to find, I think the connectedness with other things. And I think that's when we talk about living books, as opposed to a twaddle or a dry as sawdust te textbook, the sorts of textbooks we're avoiding are the things which are just the facts labelled with your little um you know, pictures, you and, and and they don't actually um, have ideas. They don't show the relationships between the facts and how um, they're connected to all the other ideas and realities and phenomena in the world. And so once you start to see the connectedness between things, then even if a in isolation, a thing, you know, it might be an aspect of civics or government or whatever, um, might be really invigorating for some people for other people it feels like oh, you've just got to know how to do it but once you start to see it's a little bland looking thing but if if that thing wasn't there what other things wouldn't work in the world like sometimes it that's enough I think just to um yeah and, and even grammar I think the more you come to like I uh, I'm a wordy person but I still get so psyched out by formal grammar because I feel like it's just slippery um, and it's meant to be definite and that's what frustrates me. But the more I've, you know, bit by bit studied it with my children, my affection for it has grown, even though it can be often framed as quite a dry technical thing. And so I, I think the way interest and affection um, and the way boredom is combated with things that seem a bit boring um, 
And usually things are boring when we haven't understood them enough. And sometimes just by taking steps toward, well, we're not interested yet, but we're going to know more than we did yesterday about it. And then just have the optimism of waiting to be surprised. You just never know when something that looked boring or has been boring for you in the past will suddenly have some element of interest. And um, so I think it's kind of an exciting um, posture to have as a home educator, just thinking you just never know what's around the corner and when something will surprise you. And, um, and it is better to, Charlotte Mason actually talks about when, you know, kids in her 100 years ago, um, if kids were of a certain class, by their mid-teens, they would be off at a boarding school and the parents wouldn't have any control over um, what the nature of the education was. And she said, you know, they'll come home in the holidays and you'll probably find that they've been given dry as sawdust lectures. But a conversation with a parent um, who has some sort of knowing sympathy, who's interested, who's trying to read some of the same stuff they are, that can turn a, a sawdust lesson into a living lesson for them. And I wonder if that's the same with some of our more boring subjects or subjects where there just isn't a great resource yet, especially with Australian things. There's a lot of gaps finding Australian resources. Sometimes just using what you've got, even if it isn't ideal, but then um, talking about it and seeing if there's um, some way of, uh, you know, going to, to visit something where you get to talk to someone who really is interested and is an expert, that can turn it into a living lesson. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how I think about those um, boring things. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, they're good points. Now, one of the things as you're talking, and if anyone um, will have a, a bit of a question time afterwards, but I hear as you're talking a passion for teaching. And I think that that is one of the... Um, keys with homeschooling is that you get excited about teaching as well and that helps you teach your kids so if you're thinking oh this is a really cool subject or I'm enjoying reading this book with you and things like that that's what really takes things to the next level um, can you talk about your sort of evolution as a teacher or as a home educator, like from where where you were when you first started, and your opinion on on how. Oh, oh can you believe it? Sorry, I don't know what that is. It's outside. Um, yeah, if you, could you talk about your evolution as a as a teacher into um, homeschooling? Yeah. So I mean, in funnily. To my constant amusement, so at uni, I studied to be a high school English and history teacher. Uh, four years full time, I never graduated. So that's so you can all feel better about yourselves. Um, but I think I did enough of educational philosophy and all that stuff to realise actually that what counts for best practice is very hard to pull off in a classroom. And so I think that gave me confidence to... Um, well, classrooms as they exist these days generally. Um, so that gave me some confidence to at least have a go. And I knew enough about a syllabus to jump through hoops um, for registration or whatever. Um, but as I said earlier, my first few years, um, I think I had the arrogance of thinking I've studied this stuff. I know, you know, I know about learning. 
Um, and I didn't really put any much effort into continuing to develop my educational philosophy and think through those things. Um, and I think I had a very utilitarian view of education that as long as my kids learn to read, they're fine. They can then, um, they can learn anything as long as they learn to read. Um, and my work here is done. Um, and I soon realised that there is an enormous difference between knowing how to read and wanting to learn. Um, and even there's a difference between a child who is good at reading and reads a lot in childhood and then as a teenager doesn't necessarily mean they're going to keep reading. And as an adult, it doesn't mean they're going to keep pursuing knowledge. Like there are different appetites at play here. So I think um, it wasn't until my eldest was sort of, uh, 11, 12, that I started to feel the weightiness, I think, of, I think I'd gotten out of my baby, toddler, you know, childbearing. I'd started to have some better sleeps probably. And so I started to give a bit more attention to what are we doing now as homeschoolers? Um, and I felt the weightiness of, actually, I have a responsibility here to, um, to educate, to provide for the education of my children. Um, and so with that, I started, um, you know, reading more of Charlotte Mason and I just found her ideas very compelling, challenging because I realised how much of my own, um, our, our homeschool was flavoured by my arbitrary um, use of my authority as a parent. I just didn't feel like getting up every day and reading um a certain methodical pre-arranged set of books uh, I, I thought well I may not feel like doing that tomorrow why would I say I'm going to plan to do this curriculum or um, I might feel like going to the beach at nine o'clock tomorrow morning so you know or I might want a nap um, so I, I was very then I realized actually my eclecticism was governed by um, me my selfishness as a I was using my power and authority as a mum just to do what I wanted and so as I started thinking actually what is good for my children what do they need and I might have to actually uh, change I guess grow in some things myself in order to to make provision for them so I think you know around um, probably six seven years ago I started to realize actually all the my own um, immaturities uh, and preferences as a parent were, were getting in the way of offering what was needed to my children. Um, and so as I, I thought, like, I'm not a uh, schedule sort of person. I'm, I, they terrify me. I didn't have any confidence in my body's ability to function consistently just with fatigue and autoimmune things I thought I just there are some days where I get up and I think I can't even get out of bed you know so how am I going to have a schedule um but I got to a point where I thought you know what I'm just gonna I cannot speak authoritatively about schedules aren't for me blah 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 until I give it a go until I say right I'm going to give six months or 12 months a go at planning ahead what we're going to do and I'm going to give this work, the respect it's due. So if I were going out to paid work, um, I wouldn't be um, catching up for a cup of tea at nine o'clock in the or 10 o'clock in the morning if I was out at work. I wouldn't be scrolling Instagram. Um, I wouldn't even be multitasking my housework 
Uh, so I thought actually maybe I'm finding homeschooling harder, which by the time my eldest was 12, so there were six kids by then, it was harder because there were so many of them. And I was in a constant state of decision fatigue. So I thought, I can't even remember what book you were reading last week, let alone you, this other person. Like, And so it was overwhelming. I thought, I've actually got to start choosing what we're doing, writing down what we're doing, because I can't remember anything. Um, and then we're just going to stick with it. And I'm going to set aside the mornings, and which was hard, because in our area, a lot of the homeschool activities are at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday or something. I thought, well, I can't. That just pretty much eliminates Tuesdays from doing any pre-planned methodical schoolwork. So I did this experiment for the year of, okay, Monday to Friday, nine until lunchtime, we're at home and I don't have visitors. I'm not on my phone. I don't make appointments for that time. And I'm trying not to do my housework in that time. I'm going to get, and which means less gets done. Um, but I, I realised if I wanted my my kids to give their best effort and their full attention, I needed to learn to do that too. Um, and I needed to give myself the respect of saying, this is work. I think I'd fought calling homeschooling work for a while because I thought, no, 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 they're learning all the time. It's a beautiful way of life. Um, it all matters, the atmosphere, like they're always learning something. Um, but then I realised, no, I'm actually more worn out by pretending this isn't work. If I just call it work and give it the respect of work <laughs> and set aside definite hours for it when I'm giving my full attention, then there are once lunchtime came, then I was free to walk away from a part of the work I'm doing. And I there was a bit of a rest. And I didn't have to be in a constant state of um, looking for learning opportunities or um, you know, you could just be really switched on for a time and then properly change tracks and think, okay, now it's actually hanging my washing out at midday is one of the great joys of my life because it's a signal for me that, oh, my brain, I get to do something else for a while. And um, so I thought that was going to be awful. And it turned out that it was so much easier to cope with homeschooling once I, I just had those definite, that orderliness because I wasn't having to problem solve as much I was problem solving at the beginning of a term making the decisions and that's an overwhelming process but then every day was just executing what I'd already decided to do and the kids were easier because they could see I was giving my best effort and so they were more willing to to give theirs and I was more because I was paying more attention they wouldn't get as distracted because it wasn't that yeah, I would notice if they were not doing their work because I wasn't trying to do something else at the same time. So that was a big shift in, in my evolution as a, um, a homeschooler. And part of that was I was part of what they were reading and learning more. Instead of sending um, my kids who could read off to do all their reading on their own, which they still do a lot of it, I was reading aloud to more of my kids, which meant I was, I was being nourished by the excellent books and the living ideas. And that is energizing. Like I realized I just lost a lot of my need to sleep during the day because um, I, was, I was better nourished, I think. And there was more variety in the day. It's really easy to give your full attention for five or 10 minutes. And then you don't get as worn out if then you're you know, sw uh, switching to another subject or another interest and giving your attention for a short time. That's kind of energizing rather than depleting. So I was really surprised 
that was a big shift in, um, I guess, my experience as a homeschooler and being nourished on the books led to more enthusiasm about the education, about what we're reading and, um, yeah, and realising, oh, there is so much in the world I don't know. And actually my older kids, they know they've read more, far more, far more than I have because they've been given all these books and they've had the leisure to read them and I'm going to spend the next 50 years trying to catch up. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah. And now and I think you have your seasons where you're off and there's, I mean, in the last year I've had lots of appointments for my dad with cancer, sort of, you know, elderly man treatment. Um, and so you don't get perfect conditions. But when you at least have a steady plan, you've got something to fall back on without having to problem solve so intensively all the time. And you've got something that brings you joy because if they're the right books and if there's poetry and art and then there's a sustaining atmosphere. So, yeah. <clears throat> they're, they're great points, Catherine. I, I know uh, it was probably after three years that I realised I had to actually treat homeschooling as a job and um, and I had to stop people dropping around. I think people, when you're first homeschooling, a lot of people think that you do nothing. Um, you're just, you know, playing with the kids. Yeah. So um, it's very hard for me to in those early days to get any sort of a routine. And my husband is an engineer, extremely structured and kept saying, you've got to add structure, Michelle. And I would just think, what do you know? You're not here all the time. You know, it, I, I can't have structure. It's too hard. But like you, once I discovered structure, I, I thrived in it. And another one of the problems that I, I often think with unschooling where people do it well um, and they are always making everything a learning opportunity, I, I think that would exhaust me. Like to have to always do, um, be on the alert for like a child who suddenly decided to want to learn about some, you know, I don't know, horse grooming. And, and you're completely not interested in it and then you have to drop everything and do it. And I, I just couldn't do that. I would find that so hard. So um, I, I met a mum who, who listened to this sort of teaching about, you know, getting involved. And at the end of the talk, she came up to me and I thought she was angry with me because she said, I, I just didn't even know about this. Um, I've just been giving my kids books all the time and I didn't realise you could learn anything like this and, and I'm going to start this way now, you know, and she, she just totally transformed her. So I think in your early years of homeschooling, you think that homeschooling is meant to be fun and free and all those things and it can be, but you still need to set aside time and that is, hmm. that will make such a difference. Um, if I can, can I just speak to that? I mean, both. I like that your engineering husband talks about needing structure because I think that's exactly the the metaphor I had in mind with that. Is actually allows you to hold more weight, like it's a weight bearing um, structure that that means more gets done with less um, of your own exertion. So it's a, it's an excellent um, picture, I think. And with the sort of um, you know, looser, freer thing and the idea that, uh, you know, everything's meant to be wild and free. Um, 
I think part of the problem, you know, often that goes with that, and I used the same idea early on, the interest-led learning stuff, thinking we're just going to pursue whatever they're interested in. The problem is children don't know enough to be interested in um, that many things yet, and it's our job to put a range of knowledge before them so that they can become interested in things that they weren't interested in previously, and they don't actually have to seem extremely interested for it to still be nourishing for them like I think we often there are sentimental things that uh, just end up being sounds lovely like the whole freedom and learning to love books and loving learning and we just want them to love what they're doing I think well if that's our standard we can be really discouraged when um, it's just a bit of a slog time and um yeah, and, and we can often then switch out things too soon that are actually really good and we might be on the cusp of something great, but if they're not loving it or it's boring or it seems like it's, um, yeah, just not the freeing experience we thought, then we can actually end up lopping off the, the branch that's about to, to bud um, because we've just got this picture of, you know, sentimental frolicking. Another thing that I think is interesting to talk about, um, and this we might finish up with this question, is when you, a lot of people, when they want to read good books, they just want to read uh, books that they think are, are good books. Like they don't have, they'll never have any blasphemy in it. They'll never have any characters that, um, would live a lifestyle that they don't condone that they want everything to be somewhat sanitized um so they're not actually picking the book for uh like you said um you know say you're having another baby so they want to pick a book where you know the person gets a sibling or or grandma's sick and so you want to pick a book with grandma's sick or not those sort of books it's more the ones that um oh, I don't want my daughter to have any romance in any of her books until she's, I don't know, 20. I don't want my, my son to ever hear of a magical thing because mm. magic is, is evil. Um, and so uh, I remember I was like that too. I, I wouldn't let my kids read Hansel. My mother read my, my kids Hansel and Gretel and I'm like, they are not allowed to read that book, that witch sticking them in the cupboard, you know, and they're handing out the their bone to pretend that they're like really skinny and stuff like that. You know, you're not allowed to read those books. And so how do you um, decide about books that have things in them that, you know, you wouldn't support? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and Shakespeare is another one that comes under the... Yes, yes. I, I remember we were at um, a Shakespeare reading one time and there was this graphic um, comment in the in the reading and my friend and I both looked at each other and we felt glad they haven't asked us to explain that one. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it's interesting because um, I think... I mean, safe ground is to go for things that have um, stood the test of time because you can say, okay, a lot of people for generations have said this is good literature, whatever it is. 
Um, and, you know, fairy tales, folk tales, myth and legend, they're all part of that canon. Um, you can say, I may not understand why this particular story is important or great at the moment, um, or I might find something hard or I mightn't have found my way into an appreciation yet. But I think having the humility to say um, that other people have seen it as important for some reason. I don't understand yet, um, but that's okay. Like we don't have to love something immediately. And there, and I think finding, um, entering, I've started to um, see the value of reading all the stuff that the best writers in English literature read. Because if you have read the things that their imagination was filled with, then you're going to get the jokes. You're going to get the um, references they're making that aren't spelled out. And you will be a better reader of their books. You, you'll be less likely to miss the meaning. You're more likely to see the significance of these important works of, of literature. If you have had the same um, foundation, if you've drunk some of the same soup that they've been drinking, this uh, soup of uh, story Tolkien talks about, all the things from our literary heritage that have gone into that soup end up um, making their way into the stories. So, um, so I think if you're going to choose anything, choose the old things and then all the, all the building blocks that have gone to make those stories. Um, and then um, you will, so what happens is if we want to, um, A, there's a difference between gratuitousness, um, A, so a lot of the young adult fiction, it's an invented genre, it's relatively recent, and it's really just commerce driven like it's about there's a market there's young people we want them to feel like they're watching a movie or watching tv and seeing and experiencing all the things that they find exciting um, and a lot of it is bad for them and it's bad reading they're just cheap tricks um, and it's worse than kind of watching a movie where you're in a bedroom scene because you're actually in those books inside the sensory experience of whoever's in the story. Like you are taken inside what, what is happening. Um, so I think if an author is resorting to cheap and cheap gimmicks like that in order to appeal to base desires to keep people reading, then that's just bad art. So we just don't need those things. If um, an author as part of a good story makes reference to the fact that someone uh, you know, you don't necessarily get taken into a bedroom scene, but someone has had um, an inappropriate relationship somewhere along the line. You don't need to filter that out because your child can receive that at whatever age of development they're at. Like they won't imagine something that isn't yet part of their experience. They will have their own way. It's just like when you read a story that would make a terrifying film that you wouldn't show your six-year-old. But in the story form, they are cognitively better able to imagine it in a way they can cope with. Um, and so, I'd, and they can live with weirdness because I've heard it said before that children are born expecting everything to be weird and unfamiliar and a mystery and magical. And so it isn't so startling to them when something weird happens in a story because, oh, well, weird things are happening all the time. Um, 
and and we have a lot more trouble because we're just we're just trying to to do something with stories which like it needs to be useful it needs to teach something clear and sometimes it's just um it's there's a bit more mystery and the kids can sit with that tension better than we can so but yeah I think if you're um I think the other problem is when and sometimes Christians can be notorious for, for doing this oh the author believed all these things they hated Christians therefore we can't read their books because you don't want them discipling your children through their stories um which is just not the way books work if it's if it's literature and if most of them have been in part of classic in literature of um, the English canon for a while then you can trust that despite the author it is a good piece of art and good art always ends up transcending whoever made it 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 ends up speaking in a way that um, goes to work on people's minds differently and it's the author cannot control what you are going to to come away with it um, the, the poetry, the imagery, the metaphors um, are what are powerful there, not what the author believed. Um, and the other, the other myth we have is that when an author puts something in a book, that therefore they're endorsing it, that that's what they think, that it's somehow a personal manifesto. Um, sometimes there is, a, you know, a, a terrible situation playing out and it's not because the author thought that was a good thing that they wanted to put in people's view it's because actually there was just an interesting story there and if it plays out um, conforming to the way um, God says is good that actually sin and folly are costly eventually um, but there's then I think we can be okay with some of the um, the the harder aspects of life um being part of the stories at the right time yeah they're great points uh now we're going to finish up here now but i just want to mention a couple of things before we finish up and we're going to turn off the recording after that and we'll have a, a short time of questions if if anyone wants to ask questions um, but uh, if you can find Catherine at her light duties web, can you explain it? Yeah, sure. Light duties. <laughs> a, um, so it's a website, but I also it's a podcast as well. So I was writing articles, but I put them in audio form because we're busy. I'd always rather listen to something than I don't sit at computers to read things because. Um, there are children and there's work to do so light duties which is at motherbiblelife.com or you can just google light duties in a podcast app so I think Amanda's putting that in the chat and for those listening um, afterwards we'll put those links in there as well so um, I just have one book that I thought I would like to mention as well and that's this book here seasons of a mother's heart by Sally Clarkson have you read that Catherine I have it and I haven't read it yet. It is, to me, it is one of the best books that I read. I must have read it four times while I was homeschooling. And Sally said that um, people used to call it the depressed book <laughs> because she wrote it often. She must have written it a lot of times when she was feeling depressed and sort of wrote her way out of the um, the situation. But it is written during her season of homeschooling and 
it is just has so many wonderful insights into what it's like to be a homeschool mum and all those struggles she's so honest about what is happening in her heart at those times and i just found it so great she also wrote another book called the ministry of motherhood and the mission of motherhood and they are excellent uh, books that really helped me learn how to be a mother and to be a homeschool mum as well so i can highly recommend those books they they were out of print for a long time and they've gone back into print now so um if you you know like this topic and you want to learn more those those books are great so oh, sorry michelle what was the main one that you mentioned first so seasons of a mother's heart by sally clarkson and the other two books were also by sally clarkson the ministry of motherhood and the mission of motherhood and they mission of motherhood and ministry of motherhood we had as a a co-op group where the mums all came together and we would discuss chapters and um there was about 20 of us and we had such a good experience because there's questions at the end. So if you feel like grabbing some mums together to do it and you don't necessarily have to be a homeschool mum for those two uh, Mission of Motherhoods and Ministry of Motherhood. Mm -hmm.